You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 26th of October. This is Monocle's House View. Today, what's fueling global protest movements? From Lebanon to Chile, we'll unpick a week of civil unrest. Plus, Mario Draghi for president. Could the outgoing boss of the European Central Bank have his eye on Italy's top job? All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and welcome to Studio One at Midori House. I'm Georgina Godwin, joined today by two sharp minds to unpick quite a week in world news. Charles Hecker is senior partner at Control Risks and Adam Labor is a journalist and author. Welcome to you both. Now, we've seen various protest movements intensify this week. Anger over a rise in metro fares in Santiago was all that was needed to ignite the worst protests Chile has seen in three decades. Meanwhile, fury in Lebanon spilled into streets following a proposed tax on WhatsApp messages. Well, that's the official version of events, but what's really fueling movements like this? Well, Charles and Adam, welcome to you both. I see you're both tucking into your into your buns. Is that the uh, is that the cinnamon or the cardamom bun, Charles? I'm a cinnamon bun fan. Cinnamon. Okay, well, I'm sticking to the cardamom. I'm afraid I'm going to I'm going to be a, a slightly different on this one. I do feel it's got more of a kind of exotic twist. We will not be stealing it from you. <laughs> uh, right, let's have a look at this because this is quite extraordinary, isn't it? All over the world, we're seeing protest movements uh, really uh, uh, take up a lot of energy uh, and for a variety of different reasons. Do you think, uh, Adam, there is one thing though that is fueling them? What's what's the the common thread? I think the common thread is a feeling of alienation and anger, that people feel they're not being served by governments, that they can't get the kind of services that they want, that they're living in a world where it, sort of disconnected elites are controlling their lives, and that can go from the extreme of the protests in Hong Kong, where there's a fear of being absorbed into mainland China and that what democracy they have is being eroded away, to what we're seeing in Beirut, which is started, as you said, with attacks on WhatsApp, but is really about the much wider question of how dysfunctional Lebanon is. And it's a basic human desire. People want to be free. They want to be in control of their own lives and they want the social contract to work. That If they're a citizen of a country and they pay taxes, they want functioning services and transparency. And that's never going to go away. But it all seems to be kicking off now together at the same time. Is this kind of a, a, a global hysteria? Are we sparking each other, Charles? There is something in the air right now. And I think we'll have to talk at some point about how much easier it is for groups of individuals, for countries and for protest movements and for issue-oriented activists to talk to each other. Uh, and whether it is social media and, and the ease of communicating globally, confidentially um, and rapidly, um, that has to play a certain role. But I agree completely with Adam who, no, who says no matter what the sparks are, to each of these individual protests, whether it was an increase in metro fares in Chile or attacks on what's up in Lebanon, there are common strands to each and every one of these protests. And, and they touch on this alienation that Adam mentioned, um, but also longer running themes like endemic government 
corruption, mm. um, slow economic growth that fails to deliver opportunity. And, and I think that we're in this period globally and politically of unrest, transition, um, and technological revolution that are coinciding to make this um, uniform around the world. Mm. Now, I want to revisit that whole idea of social media because obviously that's a big driver. But just to look at some figures. So Oxfam said in January that the world's 26 richest individuals owned as much wealth as the poorest half of the global population. So billionaires grew their combined fortunes, this according to The Guardian, by $2.5 billion a day in 2018, while the relative wealth of the world's poorest 3.8 billion people declined by 500 million a day. Much of this is about the haves and the haves-nots. I think it is to an extent, but I think that many of the poorer people in the world are not so concerned about the 25 billionaires who own so much of the wealth. What they want is modest, realisable things, like jobs for their kids, services that work, roads without holes, government officials that are uh, accountable and can't be f- bribed with an envelope. Their, their, their aims are f- to have something much more modest and realisable, I think. There is that overarching trend of wealth flocking to wealth to where wealth is. But I would say these these protests, they're driven from the bottom up. You know, if you look at what's, what sparked them in Chile, rising metro fares, attacks on WhatsApp, they're not, they're not protesting as perhaps they were in 68 about theoretical things about the, the working class and who's controlling the country and the rise of elites. These are everyday concerns, yeah. but then they morph into something much broader. And what we have now, uh, as, as, as exactly as we're saying, with the rise of social media, is a means to communicate and to organise, which simply didn't exist before. Plus, what social media also does is give people a glimpse, and the internet in general, of how other people live. So previously, if you lived, say, in a um, in Niger, uh, in a in comparative poverty, you wouldn't necessarily know how people were living in in Berlin or in Paris. But now you can see all that mm. at a glimpse, and you think, well, they're living like that. Why aren't I living like that? Why isn't my government giving me at least the opportunity to live like that? So social media's bringing in different perspectives and providing the mechanics for the protests. Absolutely. It's making the protests themselves much easier because people can communicate, can't they, Charles? That's right. They're seeing what's happening in other parts of the world and the ability to sort of mimic and and copy action and and technique. And then once something happens locally, whether it's in Hong Kong or whether it's in Paris or whether it's in any other part of the world, these movements... Um, can coordinate, can communicate, and can deliver their messages to increasingly large groups of like-minded individuals in split seconds. And, and it's interesting, it's changed to a certain extent the nature of protest because in previous cycles of these sorts of global phenomena, and it has happened before, you had protests that were led by figureheads, um, by important political, social figures. Um, In Hong Kong and in other parts of the world, these protests are amorphous and they don't necessarily have single leaders. They're diffuse. And that's the other impact of the use of social media. Absolutely. As you say, a lot of these movements are now leaderless and that's helped by the Internet. Do you think that makes them easier or harder to sustain having having no discernible leader? 
I think it makes them much easier to dis- uh, to sustain, and it's much harder for the authorities to deal with them. Because if you look at the umbrella movement in Hong Kong a few years ago, uh, when Joshua Wong was arrested, it had an effect. And they've learned from that, that if you don't have a leader, you can't cut it off at the top. And what you're seeing is top-down states trying to use very traditional methods of policing and arrests against a bottom-up movement for which they have no means of dealing with, really. The only means of dealing with it is to arrest thousands and thousands of people. And then there's the whole question of where are you going to put them? Mm. And then that would, have, uh, exa- of course, further fuel more protests and make people angrier or to use extreme violence the Tiananmen solution which is basically you you kill everybody so neither of those are really options in Hong Kong for various reasons number one a big reason being that Chinese firms listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange so further violence there wouldn't have a knock-on effect in China but that's a slight side issue the question is how do you deal with these protests there is no real means of dealing with them because their protesters uh, other than the traditional ways of arrest which won't work if the critical mass arises and the protests are using means to communicate which cannot be stopped or intercepted by governments mm. so it's really an extremely interesting phenomena. I wonder though if sometimes we do need heroes, I mean how successful would the climate change movement have been without Greta Thunberg? She is credited with mobilising the entire globe um, with her climate change protests um, but I think that she arrived at a movement that was already reaching a level of maturity around the world in widespread grassroots um, sort of motivation. And while she has served to motivate younger people and she's actually sort of coordinated the role, the environmental movement is here to stay. She served as a focal point. But I think that if all of a sudden she were not to become involved in the environmental movement, um, it would carry on without her. Mm. Now, we're going to pick up on this again a little bit later when we have a look through the papers because the FT has a really great piece on just this subject. But right now, I want to have a look at Italy or more specifically Mario Draghi because he's due to exit his post as president of the European Central Bank next week. But it seems that he won't be taking a casual stroll into retirement. He's refused to rule himself out of a career in politics and there are now suggestions that he might have his eye on a top post in Italy. Well, I wonder if he can bring the financial expertise that Italy needs because he hasn't actually said anything definite, has he? He's just said, Adam, ask my wife. Well, Mrs. Draghi (laughs) isn't here. So what do we think? I think that there's always this question of when of someone with a very high-powered job in a quite efficient or super efficient institution like the ECB that actually gets things done, decides monetary policy for the whole Eurozone, when they leave, what are they going to do? I mean, is he going to go and sort of sit on a terrace and, and look out uh, at the lovely Italian lakes all day with a glass of wine, or is he going to take on a new challenge? So traditionally, people, after those kind of jobs, they go to think tanks or to a university. I mean, any university would snap him up to be make him a professor of finance, I'm sure. But if he wants another challenge, I don't think there's any greater challenge for an Italian than trying to bring a semblance of order to Italian politics. I mean, this is a, a country where governments really don't last very long at all and is not 
I don't want to be too rude, but it's not noted for its functioning political system. <laughs> Charles, it certainly isn't, is it? Um, Mario Draghi is in his early 70s. And if I were in my early 70s, I would be very much tempted by a lakeside view and a glass of Italian wine. Um, there must be something about him. He spent his entire career, essentially, with a, with a brief stint in investment banking. He has spent most of his career in public service. And, and so there must be, on some sort of genetic level, this drive for him to want to jump into what is essentially a financially and politically floundering state, just to um, exaggerate a tiny bit. Um, Italy is on its 66th government. And at the crux of the most recent incarnation of the Italian government is a massive budgetary problem. So here's an individual saying, listen, you know, I've helped countries with this before. And so maybe I can do this now in my own country for my own people and maybe squeeze in on the weekends, you know, a little bit of lakeside time and, you know, a little bit of Montepulciano. Um, but uh, and perhaps looming in the back of his mind is the fact that he can now turn to his successor, Christine Lagarde, um, you know, and, and having managed that transition and getting to having worked together very, very closely over the years, maybe he's thinking, look, if things get really bad, there's a friend I can turn to in Frankfurt. But I mean, having a post in Italy's government looks a little bit like a poison chalice, doesn't it? I mean, nobody seems to last long in the in the top job, as, as Charles pointed out, possibly uh, n- n- apart from Berlusconi. But could becoming involved with the government actually tarnish his reputation? Well, yeah, his reputation until now has been quite successful. I mean, the ECB exists and functions and and is a you know is is a smooth working reasonably smooth working institution. So he would leave that behind him. And also remember the European Central Bank's quite new. It's uh, it's not uh, something that's decades and decades old. So he had to help set it up and make it uh, into something that that works very well. And to step from that into the dysfunctional mess of Italian politics, I think, would be quite a risky step. But maybe he's thinking about more of a role like president, because president, you have power and influence behind the scenes, but you're not actually tarnished with the dirty day-to-day politics of political parties and splits and elections and things. So I could see that he might want to take a role uh, sort of above it all, but still give giving the benefit of his experience as president, that might make a bit more sense. And do you think Italians want him, Charles? Um, Italians don't know what they want when it comes to (laughs) politics because they keep on, um, well, I was going to say appointing, electing, or variously getting along with um, very unstable coalitions that are either far right and far left or the center and then one political extreme. And one of the reasons why recent governments have been so unstable is that the electorate is sending mixed messages. Um, the leaders of parties, including the Five Star Movement or La Liga, they're sending mixed messages and they can't reconcile their differences. You know, the only thing, well, one of the most important things that Mario Draghi has behind him is he's the guy that saved the euro, basically. Mm. He is the guy who said, we will do whatever it takes to save the euro. And it was precisely that phraseology and that combination of words that calmed the markets during the euro crisis on the on the heels of the global financial crisis. And so maybe somebody who has that sort of track record feels that he'll be able to get in there and, and save his own country. That was that was quite remarkable when he said that, that we will do whatever it takes to save the euro, because it gives you a real indication of how markets work. He didn't actually even do anything at that stage, but as soon as he said that he was going to do it, things calm down, as, as you rightly say. So, I mean, if he could bring that kind of 
power, that pulpit to Italian politics, that would be a little short of a miracle. Do you remember the extraordinary thing he said about bumblebees, though? He, he went off on, on one about... He had some, some long-drawn-out analogy about bumblebees and the economy, and nobody quite understood it. Well, they could be very cerebral at the ECB. They're dealing with a lot of very sophisticated monetary theory, so but I'm sure it worked for them. You know, for stumping the panel, I'm now going to have some of your cardamom bun. That's for, that's bun, that's for sure. <laughs> cardamom bun break. Uh, yeah, so uh, in a moment, we'll have a look at the newspapers. Monocle's designed Focus November issue hits newsstands on October the 17th and there's plenty to discover from all around the world. First we venture into the Syrian capital of Damascus where the military battle is over but a different war continues and meet those trying to find their way back to normality. Second, learn how bookseller James Daunt has successfully turned the UK chain Waterstones around and is now tasked with changing the fortunes of Barnes & Noble, the last remaining chain bookshop of scale in the US. Third, we take a first look at Kumanuma, a former factory turned culture centre in the suburbs of Paris, where gallerists are creating a new artistic community away from the crowds. Renovated by French architecture firm The Freaks, this space will host private galleries, an artist residency and exhibitions. Fourth, our design-heavy issue not only features our top 20 furniture picks, we also sit down with some of the world's most talented architects, including John Paulson and Bjarke Ingels, to talk extraterrestrial infrastructure and minimalism. Monocle's November issue is available to order at monocle.com or do the wise thing and subscribe now. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, a very good morning to you from Midori House. This is Monocle's House View. And still with me in the studio, Charles Hecker and Adam Labor. Charles has been, in fact, eating my bun, so I'm quite <laughs> cross. They're pretty tasty. They are very tasty. So we'll let you finish your mouthful and start with Adam. Uh, Adam, just looking at the FT and picking up on what we were discussing earlier, which is this global push for protest movements. And the FT has a very good analysis of that. Yes, it's a, a big read and the headline is World on Fire the age of the leaderless rebellion and the piece is looking at the rebellions and the uprisings that are going on around the world Hong Kong and Chile and uh, also what's happening in Catalonia touching on Beirut as well and one of the key points it references is what we're talking about earlier about social media and the way that social media now is the uh, means by which these the protest groups are communicating and I was particularly interested to see how they're doing this in Hong Kong is that they're actually using as well as using telegram which is a encrypted message service uh, they're using airdrop which is the means by which Apple iPhones can communicate with each other wirelessly and traditionally airdrop's been used to send photographs or files but what they're doing is having a swarm of protests and the people are using their iPhones to transmit information to each other and then that's printed out and put up around the world and the other interesting thing is that the protests are not only 
becoming very fluid in the way that Bruce Lee said, be like water, flow here, mm. resist there. But they're actually responding to the way that the protests are being perceived by the general public. So they're explaining why they're doing things. They're talking, they're kind of adjusting the level of the intensity of protests when they can see that there's a backlash from people thinking... This is too violent. We don't want this. You know, maybe the uh, the state is right. So it's ex extremely fluid. It's bottom up, and it's really uh, absolutely unprecedented. We've never seen anything like this before. One thing that that the paper does point out is that, and of course, it talks about the fact that this is these are leaderless rebellions, as we discussed earlier. But it says of all the uprisings this year, probably only the revolt in Sudan achieved a clear success. So all of this is going on, but is it working, Charles? Um, it has yet to fa to finally play out. We have not yet seen the end of of, of this movie or the end of of this play. Um, and you know, these these sorts of movements, generally speaking, are cyclical. In any case, um, the problem is that some of them will end in results. Some of them won't. Some of them may be quelled by violence. Some of them may run out of steam. But there is this sort of bottled up um, pressure that is being released either by technology or by social change or by particularly repressive acts on behalf of government. Um, and, you know, we really don't know how these are all going to end. Um, part of the reason why they're here now is their predecessor protests perhaps left the job unfinished. Mm -hmm. uh, one country that the FT doesn't pick up on, and it's very much in the headlines today, uh, is Iraq, where 40 people have been killed. They've seen a massive clampdown uh, and horrific television footage of people just being shot, protesters being, being shot. Uh, uh, but Iraq does seem to be one of the few countries that is taking that kind of one of the few state actors that's taking that kind of violent action against protesters. Yes, it does. And it's, uh, the footage is extremely disturbing. And you've, we've seen pictures of protesters just being shot, shot in the head by snipers. I think uh, Iraq is, is not a, it's not a functioning country in the sense that we would understand it. And the, the old reflexes there die hard. And were under Saddam Hussein, any protests like that would be met with exactly the same means. And that's still, sadly, still continuing today. Uh, it's not a wholesale slaughter, but uh, the government there clearly doesn't really understand what's happening with these protests or have the means to deal with them. And there's also been reports that it's being stirred up by the neighbours, specifically by Iran, to mm. destabilise the government, yeah. which may or may not be true. It's interesting, Georgina, that, that the fact that violence isn't being used much more regularly to put down protests is, again, part of the ubiquitousness of the visibility of these protests. The optics of a government response to a mass protest is now more critical than ever. And whether it's the concern that protests will be put down by violence or by military pressure or by you know severe crackdowns, um, I think that it's their very mass nature and the fact that the entire world is watching at the same time is acting as a mitigating factor um, in the severity of the response from governments. But, you know, sometimes sometimes it works. So, for instance, in Zimbabwe, where I'm from, uh, right after there was a disputed election and all the rest of it, protesters came out on the streets 
live ammunition was used, people were shot dead. And what happens after that? Of course, people are frightened to go out. And, and, and at what point do you say, fine, we'll, we'll, we're just going to do it? You're putting your lives on the line and it's really, really disturbing. And another thing that, that, that the Zimbabwean government and indeed other governments have used to their advantage is that you really only need one person as a walking billboard. If you beat somebody and, and if you do a kind of catch and release and let them back into, in, in, into society to say, look, this is what happened to me. I stood up against the government. That's enough to shut other people down. I wonder if it's not a question of, of, of Zimbabwe's particular situation and its international status on, over the years of, of rule under Robert Mugabe. They didn't have that much to lose internationally, um, reputation-wise. I mean, they were on the verge of becoming an entire pariah nation, really, as a result of his dictatorial rule. So what's left to lose if there's a violent crackdown on protests in other countries where reputation is infinitely more critical and where there's a lot more to lose, I think you won't see exactly that kind of response. Yeah, I think that's true. I'd just like to come in on the whole point of Hong Kong because clearly the Chinese, China's the, one of the most powerful countries in the world. They could crush those protests if they wanted to. They as could, they did at Tiananmen. Yeah, yeah, they could bring in the army even if they don't have to go as far as Tiananmen but they could, those protests could, could be crushed if they were really determined, if they flooded the place with thousands and thousands of soldiers and set up checkpoints on every corner they could take control, but they're choosing not to do that. And that's exactly as Charles says, because of reputation, because China's balancing the security and democracy questions in Hong Kong with its economic issues, uh, because people want to, to, uh, to trade with China. People, China needs people to trade with it. And there's the question of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and what that would do to the value of the companies listed on it if there was extreme violence. So it is a balancing act between repression and reputation. Mm. I want to move on now to the rest of the British front pages because the Times, the Telegraph and the Guardian all go with this appalling migrant story. 39 people found dead in the back of a refrigerated lorry. And what all the papers say today uh, are they're quoting the text message from a 26-year-old Vietnamese woman who was in the back of the lorry. She was writing to her mother saying, I'm sorry, mum, I'm dying. I can't breathe. It's just so awful. This is a story that is equal parts heartrendingly tragic and, and, and head-scratchingly baffling that there are people whose lives are so desperate that they are willing to pay, as the papers tell us, tens of thousands of pounds to be smuggled halfway around the world um, only to die in captivity as it happens. And the papers here are absolutely graphic in their description of what's going on, including, yes, this 26-year-old young woman who's texting her mother back in Vietnam explaining that she's dying. And what the papers tell us is that these migrants are lured into transportation and into refrigerated trucks and are told that the trucks will be at minus four Celsius, which, you know, if you bundle up reasonably warm, is survivable. What happens is they get in the trucks and the trucks go and approach the border and inspection points and they drop the temperature to minus 20 C inside the trucks without anyone being told about this, without anybody being prepared or knowing about it. And they freeze to death. And the reason they do that is that if the temperature is suspiciously high inside any of these trucks, then they're opened for inspection. And, and so here is a group of people who are desperate at home and, and die in the most desperate of circumstances. Adam. No, it's absolutely heartrending. It's 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 horrific to read the story about the text and what uh, the young woman's mother must have been going through in Vietnam and the feeling of helplessness. But the 
people smuggling is not it's not a new thing. It's been going on for many years. I remember when I was a foreign correspondent in the early 90s in Eastern Europe writing articles about people smuggling and how they operate as essentially as travel agencies and if they don't get you through they give you your money back and already there's been reports of other people other Vietnamese people who haven't made it through getting their monies refunded it's a massive business and it has long been a massive business but as Charles said it's hard to understand the sheer desperation of some of somebody that's prepared to take that risk and also to find 30,000 pounds, uh, 35,000 euros, it's an incredible amount of money in Vietnam. It's incredible. And then when you get to the West, you're indebted for many, many years and you're essentially enslaved. So what kind of life do you have when you get here anyway? It's not as though they bring you here and, and you can suddenly go shopping in Marble Arch or Oxford Street and live normally. You are a slave. And you're, and you're a slave for a long time till you pay off that debt, if Absolutely. ever. Um, I'm sorry to leave it on such a downer, <laughs> um, but a really such an important story, and we must not forget the, the absolutely very human tragedy behind it. Um, Adam, thank you very much indeed. Charles, thank you too, and I'm sure that we'll have you back on the programme again very soon. That's thank Charles you. Hecker Looking forward to it. And Adam Looking Lebor. forward. Yeah. And that's all for today. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland, our researcher was Naomi Potter, and our studio manager was Louis Allen. I'm George Gina Godwin. Goodbye.